0: How often do you see puppies with gastrointestinal upset? Did you know that the GI microbiome has a significant influence on both healthy and disease states? Welcome to Vet Talk with Royal Canin, where we address an array of topics relevant to veterinarians and veterinary clinics. I'm Brenda Andreessen, Chief Strategy Officer at Stevens & Associates, and your host for this conversation. Today, we are pleased to welcome the world-renowned expert in microbiome research, Dr. Jan Sukodolsky, and Royal Canin's Dr. Craig Datz, we're going to dig into the latest research in the puppy microbiome and learn about protecting the health of puppies from newborn to maturation. Welcome Jan, I'd love to hear what led to your focus in this world of microbiomes.
1: Yeah, it's a long story. So that was part of my PhD uh, a long time ago. And so back then we still didn't really understand much about the microbiota. There There was a time where we mostly cultured bacteria and we had a very limited view about all the gut bacteria. Our focus was mostly on pathogens. So we thought, okay, if we identify what our pathogens are, we can treat them. And then that's how the gut makes healthy. And then, so I was, my PhD project was looking at small intestinal overgrowth. That is a disease that is nowadays concerned as small as dysbiosis. And we know it's a disease that is not well described, but a lot of animals respond to antibiotics and we have no idea why but they do. And so that's why it's a common practice. And my PhD was to identify the mechanism behind it. And that was really when the microbiome started. And so I moved into molecular tools and discovered this huge complexity of gut bacteria. So many of those bacteria, we had no idea they existed because we couldn't culture them. And so that was the beginning of the gut microbiome. That was my research start.
0: Interesting Um, segue into Asking you then, Craig, was the nutrition part the connection for you then, I assume, into this topic?
2: Yes, I got into nutrition more of a specialty mid-career, but before that, I noticed that sometimes diets and nutrition and, like Dr. Jan said, all sorts of drugs seem to cure diarrhea in DOS, but we didn't know why. Uh, but then we were also taught about antibiotic overuse and then the kind of the adverse effects sometimes from always reaching for medicines. So I have been interested in the idea of can we handle uh, common health issues such as diarrhea with diet and maybe not reaching for drugs every time.
0: So let's start today's conversation really with talking about that puppy microbiome. What is it and how does it develop?
1: Yeah, so the microbiome is is something that we obviously hear more and more, but simply speaking, the microbiome is all the microorganisms which are parts in the GI tract, and it's mostly bacteria. So we think it's 98% of all the microbes are bacteria, but then we have also viruses and fungal organisms and some protozoa. And what we discover now that the gut microbiome and mostly who is there, but also the function of them. So they, they produce a lot of metabolites that ultimately influence the well-being of the host is a really very important immune organ, but also metabolic organ. So we're discovering now associations between the gut microbiota in health and how they influence, obviously, the GI tract. But there's, there's the so-called gut-brain axis. So what happens in the guts has influence on cognition, on behavior, neural developments. There's a gut-kidney axis. That means what happens in the guts can also influence progression of kidney disease. So the more we discover, the more we understand that the many metabolic pathways start in the guts and they're driven through bacteria. There's, in fact, some metabolic pathways that we recognize now that only bacterial enzymes can do. And so ultimately, what we discovered the last 20 years is that our gut bacteria and ourselves is really one system. We cannot separate them us anymore. So we have to discover that we need to protect the gut microbiota because they are part of us. But at the same time, we need to also understand how can we manipulate, influence it, so that it really keeps us healthy, because if it changes, there could be also obviously a disease phenotype. So that's why, where we are at the moment. So we know it's very, very important. We discovered some pathways that are crucial. And the next step is ultimately, how can we modulate it to keep us healthy? Well,
0: so why, why then is this so particularly important in puppies?
1: Well, so when we go, it's not only in puppies, but obviously in humans, and everybody, when you're born, we're more or less sterile. I mean, so we don't really have a microbiota. There's some new evidence that maybe a few bacteria are present already in the placenta or meconium, but that's something that's novel information. But generally, we are very low populated. And the moment we are born, we get all this environmental bacteria that colonize the guts. So within 24 hours, there's a lot of bacteria present already. But in the beginning, it's more bacteria that are from the vaginal birth canal and some environmental bacteria. And then over the first few weeks to months of life, in humans, it's almost like two years. In puppies, we probably think about the first two, three months are the most important ones because the normal microbiome has to develop. And so that, that parallels... Weaning, so when they start eating solid foods, obviously the pH in the gut changes, um, bacterial enzymes change, you know, digestive enzymes. So a lot of those architecture that develops ultimately allows the normal, normal gut microbiota to establish itself. But because of that, because the puppies for the first few weeks of life don't have yet a mature microbiome, they're also much more susceptible to, for example, anthropatogens or... Those pathways that protect us, the immune stimulation, they're missing and so on. So those are the very crucial steps, crucial phases in the first few weeks, months of life, where it's very unstable. And there is a lot of potential for being susceptible to different digestive upsets.
0: Understood. Okay. So is, is that one of the reasons why then veterinarians so often reach for antibiotics when puppies do present with acute diarrhea?
1: I think yes, and I think we still have, and not only in puppies, but I think in veterinary medicine, we still have the, the thought process that many diarrheal causes are somehow related to bacteria. However, the more we learn about it, the more it's probably less true. I mean, there's other, many other factors that really cause diarrhea more common than really a truly bacterial infection. And so those could be stress-related situations, I think, especially in puppies. Stress is a big uh, factor, addresses motility we have other factors, for example, like some viral infections or that we don't really know much about them yet. So my point of that is, or for example, even um, causes like weaning and changes in diet and so on. I think those are many, many more common factors that really can cause diarrhea rather than really a bacterial um, cause. So we're discovering that's Antibiotics sometimes they work in those situations, but they're definitely not the panacea, and often probably overprescribed in these situations.
0: So, are there some guidelines then that we should offer up to listeners around when antibiotics really are necessary versus when you can do something like modify the diet?
2: Yes, I, I believe that there's a, an overreliance on antibiotics or just medications in general for health conditions that are. Sometimes they're mild, self-limiting. So if a puppy has diarrhea for two, or three days, then it gets better. Uh, my own experience: I have a six and a half month old puppy, and a couple of months ago, he had diarrhea for about eight or nine days, and at the whole time, you know, uh, typically as a veterinarian, I would have prescribed an antibiotic such as metronidazole to clear up that diarrhea, but I didn't because I felt like it wasn't serious diarrhea. That was the only clinical sign. There was no vomiting or fever or lack of appetite. Um, so we just kind of worked through it as kind of just a, a, a typical change in the puppies and GI tract, you know, who, who knows what caused it. And that's something I remember in my first job as a veterinarian, I used to ask my uh, the older vets that work there. So what causes these acute vomiting, diarrhea, puppies and kittens, and they say, we don't know, just treat it. <laughs> and so um, You know, as a nutritionist, I've been very um, intrigued by the idea of taking a diet and taking a certain formulation of a diet and perhaps functional ingredients and sometimes even supplements and using that in place of medication to treat uh, uh, mild supplementing diarrheas or acute diarrheas in puppies and kittens. And there there has been some success. There's been some research trials and there is some pretty good evidence around concepts such as uh, prebiotics in the diet and prebiotics are... uh, typically fiber sources that are non-digestible, but they are fermented in the large intestine and they produce um, short-chain fatty acids and they sometimes have beneficial effects on the microbiota. Now, now I guess this is a question for Jan. Would you agree that like a healthy microbiota leads to normal stools, whereas an unhealthy GI microbiota, for whatever reason, commonly results in diarrhea or is that an oversimplification?
1: Generally, yes, but it's still probably more complicated than that. And I think what we need to understand is that the microbiome is one part of the whole system. And I think that is really crucial because I think it's a new field and many new, many new thoughts are always, okay, we can explain everything with the microbiota. And I think it's important, but we also need to understand how it fits with the rest of the GI tract. And I'll give you an example. So, I mean, a classical thing is, for example, if you don't have a highly digestible diet, you know, you're going to have sim- simply food left over in the lumen. If there's more food left over the lumen, bacteria can overgrow. And because of that, you're going to have more bacteria, potentially more bacterial metabolites causing diarrhea. So again, sometimes you can have a normal microbiome, but you have the wrong substrate. And the classical thing would be non-digestible diets, for example. I think, so it's, it's yes, yeah, so classically, if we don't have a dysbiosis, we definitely have a correlation more of disease, but we can also have a subclinical dysbiosis to some degree. So again, we need to understand this in the complexity with everything what's going on the GI tract, I think, and that that is really crucial. So, the combination of diet is is makes perfect sense, because we can really you know, diet is crucial as to be absorbed. If we don't absorb it, we're gonna have bacterial overgrowth. if if is, is a simple thing that potentially causes diarrhea, and often veterinarians mistake this for infectious cause and give antibiotics, and that's really where ultimately a whole cascade can start where well, we're going to have a dysbiosis long-term induced and potentially later on we have problems.
0: So I want to dig a little bit more into, um, you know, Craig, you mentioned prebiotics, but what about probiotics? We know that there tends to be a, a big increase in, hum- in puppy owners, dog owners, relating their own treatment to the treatments of their animals. And so probiotics are becoming very popular now for human medicine. So how does that impact the microbiome, is that a good idea? Is it a
1: bad idea? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the probiotics have absolutely its place, but I think to take a step back, let's, let me just explain a little bit how we now understand what the microbiome does. And so the microbiome consists probably of several hundred different bacterial species and they perform a certain function. Okay, So for example, they can ferment fiber. So, if you have a fiber source, bacteria can ferment them and ultimately produce short-term fatty acids, which we know are anti-inflammatory, they are the stimul- they are energy source, and so on. Another pathway is, for example, the bile acid pathway that is really crucial. So, some bacteria can convert primary secondary bile acids. secondary bile acids have a lot of important immune functions across the body. So when we understand what all the microbiome does, it's important to understand that there's many different species with different functions, and we have a complete, complete picture of metabolism. Now, if we give probiotics, they have absolutely a, a, a place in medicine, absolutely, I think, but we need to understand that probiotics usually just are one or several strains. And so they're going to have a limited function compared to the microbiome that we really have. So the ideal situation for, for probiotics is to find probiotics that replace either missing function in disease or that adds some function that might be beneficial, like stimulate the immune system or improve barrier function and so on. So that's how probiotics work. And that's why. We need to understand that each of those treatments has different modalities. So some of them are really complementary. So I think prebiotics and probiotics might have together a, a much better sh- chance long term health than just one or the other.
0: So how then does nutrition come into play? So are there certain nutrients that play a bigger role um, in that microbiome composition that, you know, it is obviously a very complicated subject, as you've said, how do we sort those pieces out?
1: I think we've made a lot of progress over the last 10, 15 years. And I think we can, t- we can build on a lot of experience that comes from nutrition already. I think we have from experience that digestibility, protein content, fat content, and carbohydrates or fiber have beneficial functions. Now, when we add the microbiome research on top of that, it can help us explaining many of those c- compounds and we can refine them. So I think for me, a highly digestible diet that is moderate pro- moderate to high protein, moderate fats, and more fiber content seems to be at the moment the one that has the more diverse microbiome, if that makes sense. So for maintaining health, that is for me probably the one that at least we know about. When it comes to disease, there's a lot of different factors because sometimes the disease has a different reason and we need to address the disease and so on.
0: So, you know, Craig, I'd like to ask this one of you, how do you believe we can use all this information to help veterinarians and veterinary technicians um, have practical tips at their hands when they are confronted with some of these situations?
2: As a nutritionist, my recommendation is always going to start with a complete and balanced diet that is formulated for the growth stage, since we're talking about puppies. Um, We want to be careful not to just randomly select pet foods that may be more intended for adult dogs, or may be intended for dogs with maybe medical conditions. And just because you've got an older dog in the family that has kidney disease and you get a new puppy, that doesn't mean you share the diets. So once we kind of get the basics about a complete and balanced diet appropriate for puppies, then we look to see, do we have a, a diet that is formulated for optimal health of puppies? And that would include high digestibility, um, as Jan has already mentioned, if you have a protein source that's low digestibility, it could bypass and arrive into the colon or the large intestine, unprocessed, undigested, still some remnants of uh, parent protein, uh, polypeptides, and so forth. And the bacteria kind of go to town because they're all of a sudden presented with a, a new food source, so to speak, or a, a substrate where they can start fermenting, you know, which could lead to um, excessive uh, uh, you know, fluid, water and fluid collection and gas production, poor quality stools, and eventually an unhealthy puppy. Um, so we do, as pet food companies, as they formulate proper diets for puppies, they do take into account the digestibility of the protein sources. But that also extends to the um, fat. The fat sources are generally highly digestible, but the types of fat you might use in a puppy food may differ because there's different fatty acids that are needed in different proportions for puppies as for adult dogs. Um, fat is composed of fatty acids, and it's not just one that's essential. We have to have a, the right balance of um, you know, saturated, unsaturated, polyunsaturated, linoleic acid, long-chain polyunsaturated fatty acids, um, such as DHA, which has uh, been shown to be needed for uh, neural development and eye development, too. So we want to make sure that puppy food is enriched with DHA. Um, So then we we can switch over to fiber and a puppy food should not really be high in fiber because fiber is wonderful as an adjunctive treatment, sometimes for adult dogs with diarrhea or for certain cases. But in puppies, a high fiber diet may not be ideal for their microbiome. It may lead to a poor digestibility of the diet, maybe less nutrient absorption, poor quality stools. And so we tend to avoid using extra fiber in puppies, but that's not to say a puppy with chronic diarrhea. Sometimes they do respond to fiber supplementation or high fiber diet, but on on the average, a healthy puppy, we shouldn't be looking for a high fiber diet. Um, And we want to make sure the vitamins and minerals are in the correct proportion, not too much, not too, not too little. Um, So when it's overall said and done, I do try to get the message out that pet owners should not just willy nilly feed human foods. They should not feed um, inappropriate diets, they shouldn't feed excessive treats, they shouldn't feed table scraps. All of those things could very negatively influence a puppy, uh, puppy's GI tract, puppy's microbiota, just overall puppy's health. Um, and I frequently get questions about parasites. Well, this, this puppy had roundworms, or this puppy had giardia, and I gave him more medicine, but he's still having diarrhea, so I need to deworm him over and over again. So, well, maybe not, because the worms are definitely a disruptor to a healthy GI tract. But once they're dewormed, if the diarrhea continues, you probably need to look for another cause. And this is where we bring it to the, you know, maybe it's an improper diet, maybe it's stress, maybe it's a, a viral infection, um, could be even a, a metabolic endocrinopathy, such as a hypoadrenocorticism, which is overlooked sometimes in puppies, because we think of it as an adult disease. Um, Exocrine pancreatic insufficiency can cause diarrhea in some puppies. And so you have to keep thinking as a veterinarian, okay, well, the puppy is... Having diarrhea it's not growing well there's just something chronic going on um, is it do I need more dewormers probably not do I need antibiotics probably not you probably need to go back and try to make a diagnosis and maybe a more specific treatment plan
0: Well, it's interesting because this research is revealing you know again this is a much more complicated story I think than most veterinary professionals realize it is and kind of underscores the point that you can't just go tell them to choose any product off the shelf to feed their puppy, we really need to be very thoughtful about it. So I'm really curious to know, Jan, what's next for this research? What 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 comes up now, and and how do we get more information out?
1: I guess the next is really to understand. I mean, in in the health, I think as long as what what, what Greg said, I mean, as long as we keep puppies healthy, I think we're all good. I think where really the area comes that we need to understand more is what happens in disease and what alternatives we can have, because again we're still limited in our therapeutics. I mean, once we have diarrhea, yes, we can start with diet, but then very quickly we, we, we kind of are, you know, exhausted. And then we, some people, we go, we go for antibiotics and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't, but again, so the, 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 the area that we really doing a lot of research now is to understand all those pathways, the metabolic pathways, which, which of them really potentially cause diarrhea and how can we improve them? And so Examples I can tell you is, for example, like the bile acid pathway is one of them that we know it's important to keep it healthy. But if you have too much bile acids, you actually can have diarrhea. And sometimes some fiber sources, for example, can bind some of those bile acids. So, can we find alternatives, binder, for example? So, when it really comes down to it, it's really going back a little bit to the basic and saying there's osmotic diarrhea that is potentially microbial imp- influenced. There's secretory diarrhea, also microbial influenced. So what alternative treatments can we add that we really stop having diarrhea? So I think it's really actually, that is the real simple concept. And I think going back to old things that we kind of knew it works, but never understood, I think that's really actually the most promising area. Some other areas that, we, that we're that really focusing now is fecal microbial transplants. Meaning, so instead of using antibiotics against anthropathogens can we simply you know, inf- inf- infuse healthy donor stool and can that help us in some diseases? And I think we have, especially in, in diseases that are infectious, we have a good success rate. So I think that's a potential alternative. And ultimately, it is really understanding understanding how the microbiota inf- works together with the host. And I think that is really the big steps. And I think, ultimately, we need to bring some this into clinical practice to, understand, to make veterinarians understand that we have alternatives, and that's why we can protect the gut microbiota. 'Cause I think the one question came up all is about, you know, what is the long term consequences and uh, and especially there is there's quite a, a lot of data in humans now coming out that if we have a dysbiosis, especially in the early, early um lifetime. So in, in humans, it's mostly obviously done in, in humans, but in infants, even even in pregnancy. So even there's some some data when 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 pregnant women receive antibiotics during pregnancy, that potentially is a risk factor for some of children ultimately develop some chronic GI disease. So there's definitely a risk factor there. Again, it's not a major one, but again, understanding this is a very vulnerable area. So we need to protect the gut microbiota and we need to identify alternatives. So that is really the the most important focus of research for the future.
0: We've covered a lot of information here in this podcast so far. So if we had to winnow this down, to one or two key takeaways, what would you want them to walk away with?
1: For me, it's, it's first of all, the understanding that, uh, that we have a gut microbiota This is still a very new area. So it's still not, it's still just reaching textbooks and continuing education lectures. We understand the gut microbiota has a lot of important functions, and especially in the early developments of, of the guts, it is really critical. And so ultimately, what we need to understand is there's other contributions often to diarrhea. So we, we should try other approaches first, like mostly dietary approaches, nutrition, so to, order to protect protective guts, because that is really a risk factor. When we induce dysbiosis, this risk factor is, can be really huge for later life, for chronic GI diseases.
0: This has been a really fascinating topic and one that I know we're going to hear a lot more about in the days to come. I would like to say thank you to Dr. Craig Datz and thank you to Dr. Jan Sukodowski For sharing your expertise with us today. Thank you, Jan, and thank you, Brenda. Thank you.